Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever and whenever you are. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Understood Properly with Brian Thornton. And today I want to talk about, uh, well, let's talk about what's on everyone's mind, shall we? Immigration. It's a third rail of American politics. Not really. It's not even a third rail. It's a wedge issue. And that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about it. Of course, um, the focus for this is what has been what has completely overtaken the news media over the last few weeks. People are up in arms about the Trump administration's policy of zero tolerance at the border. This, of course, was implemented by Jeff Sessions um, about a few weeks ago. And um, I want to start today, I guess I think I'm going to start with this. I wrote a little thing when this was all happening, and it's a little... I wouldn't say it's super dense, but it's not normal. It's not like the normal stuff you read. So I wanted to kind of work through this really quickly. Paraphrasing, as I will, because it's written form versus versus reading it aloud. And, um, and then I want to try and move us through a conversation that starts where I think the conversation needs to begin, so to speak. And tries to move us past as I'm as I'm I'm trying to do this in my own thinking all the time, and I share it on the show with the express purpose of other people being able to do so, um, and trying to move us past the political or political rhetoric, political thinking, however you really want to put it. I haven't settled on a specific buzzword, but but political thinking is a is a good is a good catch-all term for all of it. Um, so so it begins like this. Political thinking, without a coherent foundation, clouds your judgment and reasoning. This is something I've been fond of saying as of late, but I'm hoping to demonstrate what I mean in the following paragraphs. So what I'm going to try and do is elucidate exactly what goes into, exactly what, what it is that you see or really hear and how it's political thinking and specifically dealing with the immigration issue. Unless you've been off the grid for the last few weeks, you have seen the photos and heard the crying of illegal refugee, undocumented migrant, alien, immigrant children. Now in, in the piece, I have each of those, and you can see this at uh, subversiveliberty.org. It is going to be basically just attached to this episode because um, I don't I don't need it as a standalone article. Um, I'd rather people listen to the episode after reading it anyway. So illegal, refugee, undocumented, migrant, alien, immigrant, children who have, as a matter of policy, been separated from their parents at the border. The parents being held separately for prosecution and the children forced to stay in detention centers here in the U.S. This is a change from the catch-and-release policy that has been practiced in the past. I crossed out, or I, I ran through really quickly, but in the piece, I, I've crossed out all the different adjectives because they don't matter. These are, at the end of the day, children, and regardless of the word I would use to add context to their existence, that's, that's essentially what an adjective is meant to do, this fact remains. You probably read, or in this case listened to, at least one of those words, and they resonated with you as appropriate, and you read others that struck you as insensitive, antiquated, politically correct, heaven forbid, or distasteful. If I had chosen one of those words over another, they would have immediately clouded your judgment before you read the rest of the piece and over the rest of the thoughts that I'm expressing here. All of these words, and I'm going to read them again, illegal, refugee, undocumented, migrant, alien, immigrant. All of these words have a 
political. They have an expressly political connotation. And begin the signaling from the author to the reader as to how you should frame the story. Now, framing is something that is very important for for many different reasons. And in fact, is 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 even what I'm trying to do within this show and within all the things I write. I'm trying to frame issues, right? So a frame is what goes around a picture, you know, around a, an image of something else or an idea in this instance. And it's supposed to, in some ways, focus. It, it's supposed to focus you. You're, it's supposed to kind of give you an outline for where we are going to have a conversation. And for most media sources, when as they're as they're doing this, you know, let's say that what's you know what's very popular, right and left, Democrat or Republican. So if you're writing for a Democrat outlet. If you're writing for uh, some sort of outlet that that favors more Democrats or progressives or socialists or what have you, they, you know, we can already we can already pick out. They probably would have chosen undocumented or migrant, if you or even refugee in some instances. If you were writing for a right wing site, chances are you would use the words illegal, alien, or maybe both together. But they're still children. And that's what we're talking about here. And of course, that's why that's one of the reasons why this story, for better or for worse, has captivated uh, news headlines and more importantly than the news headlines, because honestly, that was that was kind of predictable. You have something like this happening under an Amer- under an American <laughs> under under a Republican administration. They are going to capitalize on this. And I'll kind of get into that in a little bit. Why I make that specific um <laughs> why I make that specific allegation, but, but this, this really did go after this, this really did. I, I think this resonated with people. It certainly resonated with me. And in some ways I had honestly forgotten about what had happened in the past. And by the past, I don't mean the forties dummies. I mean, 2014, but all these words, all those words that I just, I just put out there have a political con- connotation. Excuse me and begin the signaling from the author to the reader as to how you should frame the story. My writing, or in this case speaking, yet striking them out is obviously purposeful, which will become clear. So I go on. Politicians thrive off divisions within the group of individuals they, in quotes, represent. The fact that divisions and differences of opinion exist antecedent to their purposeful cultivation of this reality does not negate the process in any way. That is to say, there may be intractable differences between two given individuals' viewpoint of the world that without a political atmosphere would still exist, but the politician's function in this is to exploit and amplify these differences for their own end, namely re-election and the accumulation of political power. So I'm going to go ahead and go back again and, and kind of focus on this. Politicians thrive off the divisions within the group of individuals they represent. The fact that these divisions and differences of opinion exist antecedent to their purposeful cultivation of this reality does not negate the process in any way. What I'm trying to get at with this, with these, what, couple of sentences here, or maybe this is just one long sentence. I'm, I'm, I'm fond of doing really long sentences when I write like this. There can be a difference of opinion. I, I do, I have... Um, you know, you, you kind of, I, I don't know, everyone tends to go through stages of their thinking, at least I would, I would assume they do, especially if you're somebody who tries to think carefully about things. And there was a time where, and maybe to a certain extent, I still, I still believe this, but 
there's something to be there's there's something to or there is often the argument made that well if we just didn't have politicians if we just didn't have politicians doing these things well then there'd be no there there'd really be no issue if we didn't have the politicians dividing us and pushing us in different ways right like this is democrat and republican are just inconsequential differences there's really nothing that separates us as as two people and this is this is a very nice thought and it is frankly if i if i kind of think about it now it is something of an egalitarian thought and i think i have become less convinced of that being the case this is um actually let me take it another way this is this is in some ways what the enlightenment was about right so it's this idea that we can with through the cultivation of reason we can move beyond i don't know they would say like religion old modes of thinking yada 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 and one of my in that i've written about the enlightenment in school and talked about it one of the critiques that i have of it is the fact that while I do obviously think the cultivation of reason is a very important thing and that everyone should pursue it, I think that I think one of the things that that they that they missed was not 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 as many people as you might think are are all that interested in, in cultivating their reason, so to speak. It's not everybody that it's not everybody that wants to do this. And I, and I've become more comfortable with that fact and the fact that that might be the case. And more importantly in that, you know, I tend to poo poo the idea of left and right. Um, but, or I used to more so than I do today. Um, more than that, I, I use, and so more, sorry, let me get my thoughts together. I used to not be super interested in the differences between the left and the right. I didn't really think that in that there were, they were consequential to any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, they were a consequence of the political process, let's say, or just politicians or just our modern age, right? I I would think, I I thought that if you peel that back, underneath people are the same, so to speak. And by the way, I do think that, you know, we all share in some common feature that makes us humans dna genetics yada yada you know we're like what is it 99.9 percent the same everyone it's just like that 0.1 percent difference as it were that that's what makes us unique but one one thing and i've talked about this before that i've become more comfortable with through you know through learning really because this isn't like this isn't like i'm just sitting in some vacuum and trying to think of things like oh maybe this is better no like i've, I've listened to people um specifically jonathan Haidt in this matter uh other people you know to a lesser extent and one thing that i've become a little more comfortable with saying with believing with with inputting into my thought right like as an input as a way to understand situations is that there might be underlying differences that contribute to what are also political divides because it's my contention that whatever the political is it is one of the last things that happens right it is not the first it shouldn't be and this is this is part of the problem with just using political thinking going back to the beginning this is why i said political thinking without a coherent foundation clouds your judgment it's not just that you can't think politically right you know we can politically strategize we can try and figure out what the best thing is to make these ideas more popular in the mainstream or or try or, or try to win an election or try to get people to vote for you i'm not saying i'm really not saying in and of itself this is a bad thing but I think when you're starting, you should make sure you have a coherent foundation. And I specifically mean a coherent foundation of thought. 
you should have a coherent foundation of thought that, you know, starts with something like philosophy or even religion, if you don't want to go through the hassle of starting with philosophy. So politicians thrive off these division, thrive off divisions within the group of individuals they represent. You don't actually need 50% of people to vote for you. If you're a politician, you need like 10% of the 40% who show up or something like that. There's a really interesting presentation you can find online that kind of goes through this. Um, and maybe I'll find it and put it out there one of these days. So even if there are intractable differences, right? These are differences that you cannot move a path, that you cannot move past. It is the case that there could be really fundamental differences between two individuals' worldview. And these would exist before the politician enters. But what I'm trying to get at here is that politicians themselves, like in, the, in that they are a class of, of, of humans, they essentially thrive off of the divisions within a group of individuals, with, within, within a group of people, and specifically the people they represent. The, because the politician's function in this is to exploit and amplify these differences for their own end, namely re-election and accumulation of power. And as another qualifier here, I guess more specifically, we'd be talking about representative governments, right? Um, although, you know, kings, if we think of like an absolute monarch, they do the same thing. It's more that they're trying to get all the people to be on their side and then tell you that the other is like the people in the other kingdom or maybe gypsies who roam through your lands or something like that. The point is, the, the point is, in my estimation, is that their function is to exploit and amplify these differences for their own end, which are namely re-election and accumulation of political power. Occasionally, Okay, so here's another. Here's the qualifier that I actually wrote in. Occasionally, this selfish drive can be a net gain for society. Since we understand society as being a group of indi- a group of people, generally speaking, bound within a geographic framework and under the current auspice, under the current situation, a common government of sorts. Occasionally, this selfish drive can be a net gain for society. In parentheses, a very easy one to conjure to mind being pitting abolitionism over slavery or slaveholding, right? That that's a pretty good that's a pretty good way for a politician to be using this division of people, of dividing people, and you know latching onto one idea against another is in fact the idea of abolition over the over the institution of slavery. And I purposefully chose that one because it's one that nobody disagrees, nobody should disagree with. I would argue, in today's world. Of course, there is still slavery in the world today. Um, there are open-air slave markets in Libya, and we have, in some part at least, U.S. policy to thank for that, but I shouldn't really get off on that tangent. But typically, the follow-up, but, and this is, and so yeah, so, forget what I just said, even though it's true. A very easy one to conjure to mind is being, is, is pitting abolitionism over slavery, right? So by doing that, by a politician capitalizing on that and using it to pit, you know, pit people saying, I'm an abolitionist. If you're an abolitionist, vote for me. That's not a bad thing for society, but it can easily not be as good of a thing for society. But typically, and this is, this is the important point about this. The politician follows a shift in culture, reflecting the opinions their voters look for. The hard work of changing perception, correcting an injustice, or clarifying a misconception is more often than not left to those who swim upstream, upstream the currents of culture to redirect the flow with, their per, with the pearl of wisdom they have to offer. 
it's a nice little metaphor I wrote, but I, but I really think I really, I mean, obviously I wrote it, but I really think that it, um, I think that's an important point that especially in the American system, we, we, we take for granted that politicians are the ones that we should follow. And I think that's just, I think that's entirely wrongheaded. And I think a perfect case of this, you know, where I'm recording this, actually, no, I'm recording this in July. But if I was recording this in June, I'd say, well, you know, it's a perfect thing to remember when it comes to the idea of Pride Month and the idea of gay marriage. Because, of course, the president, the former president, excuse me, President Barack Obama, did not support gay marriage until, what was it, the end of his first term, the beginning of his second? I guess, here, let me look it up real quick. When was, when, when did he... What was it? What is, what was the headline? Like the gay president or something? When did Obama support gay marriage? The point being, in two thousand eight, when when President Obama, when former President Obama ran the first time, he was very much in line with what was what was the standard opinion that most people agreed to at that point, which was that marriage is a sacred institution between a man and a woman, and the government should have no role in changing that. Of course, the government has had a role in marriage, unfortunately, since the beginning of the progressive era. This is part of what the problem is to begin with, is the fact that this thing traces oh, this this thing traces back so far into U.S. history that there was just one bad one bad decision after another vis-a-vis marriage. Right? This all started like with miscegenation laws. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, okay, so cool. I was right. So it was when he was running for re-election. And, you know, and to be fair, I think what happened by and large had nothing to do with the fact that he decided, oh, when I run for re-election, I'm going to make this brave stance. No, no, that's and I think I think people want to give him that benefit of the doubt. Um, By the way, I don't know the man's heart, so I can't say for sure or not whether or not he supported gay marriage or the idea of gay marriage beforehand. My inclinations are that he did, because I think a lot of people were kind of like, eh, why is this such a big deal? But as a politician... And this is what this is. This is the important part. As a politician, he was not able to take that stance publicly because it was understood that the culture would reject that. I think 2008 is when Prop 8 failed in California. California, right? Like it, this is something that almost seems so long ago in a different world that we need to that we need to restate it. But this wasn't. I hate I hate sounding like every other person out there doing a show like this. But this wasn't that long ago, and I really think it's important to have a longer memory when we're talking about issues, especially if we're trying to get at this idea of political thinking and how it affects us and how it affects our perception of things and our understanding of things. And if you come, if you go away with one thing, don't trust a politician to begin with. You don't have to trust a podcaster either. I'm not saying to trust me, but what I am saying is that in my estimation and that I've analyzed the situation and that I've tried to understand it, politicians follow a shift in culture reflecting the opinions their voters look for. I'm reading again from the piece. The hard work of changing perception, correcting an injustice, or clarifying a misconception is more often than not left to those who swim upstream the current of culture to redirect the flow with the pearl of wisdom they offer. That's the person that changes it. It's the person, right? You know, this is is, um, a, a very easy one, right? This is the person who says no. This is the person who sits when people says when people say stand. This is the person who stand when people say sit. This is the guy in that picture of the Nazis who's not doing the the open the open palm salute, the Sieg Heil. This is the guy who stands in front of the tanks in Tam, um, I'm going to butcher the name in 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 Maoist China. Was it T- Tamini Square? Something with it, that sound in it. Those are the people who change a conversation those are the people who are 
you know, this, these are the people who demonstrated in the streets in the 70s for what is essentially something that the government should never be involved with to begin with. But, you know, if we want to take the idea of marriage out of this, anti-sodomy laws, right? The idea that it was illegal in and of itself to be a homosexual is is asinine to anybody who agrees with the idea of a free and open society. And I think that's whether, and this is, and I should say, not there's anything wrong with that, to use the Jerry Seinfeld thing, but if you are somebody who maybe has personal reservations in this regard you should strive to you know overcome that and you know come to what i would say the better stances which is you know like as long as they're not hurting you and not taking your stuff they're not really doing anything wrong i don't know why i got off, got off on a tangent in regards to gay marriage i mean it's important especially if we're talking about the evolution and political and, and politicians stated thoughts again this is nothing about their private heart this is absolutely nothing to do with their private heart this is everything to do with the public stance they take, and this is what politicians do. They follow shifts in culture by and large. They do not stand with them. There are obviously exceptions to this rule, but they tend to follow shifts, especially when it's these big issues, especially when they're issues that, have, that then in and of themselves become politicized. Moving on. Enter whataboutism. If you haven't come across this term, which seems to be making a resurgence in the past couple of years, it is a variance of the two-quo-quo logical fallacy that attempts to discredit an opponent's position by charging them with hypocrisy without directly refuting or disproving their argument, which is particularly associated with Soviet and Russia propaganda. In parentheses, thanks Wikipedia, because that's, that, that's where that quote came from. The word propaganda, it's back to me, is used pejoratively in the modern lexicon, but it can be un understood simply and with less vitriol as engaging in the field of public relations or spinning a story to suit the needs of a particular individual group or institution. This is important. I will not always use words in a pejorative sense. I might use them in a clinical or descriptive sense. And I think this is really important if we're talking about political thinking because a lot of times words get their pejorative meaning, especially like words that maybe have multiple meanings and are used as pejoratives, especially when we're dealing with current events and political topics by the political realm. To quote from the book Propaganda, written by Edward Bernays, who I believe is the reason why we have eggs and bacon in the morning, it had something to do with the fact that pork sales were down with the, um, uh, with the railroads and, and you know people, cattle ranchers out west being able to get their beef to market. So pork sales were going down. And so he like, he, he figured out how to do advertising and marketing and propaganda and PR da, 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 and managed to, you know, get us that we eat eggs and bacon, which frankly, I'm not, I'm not blaming him for because I love eggs, eggs and bacon in the morning if I can get it. But this was written in 1928 in an attempt to explain the field and its purpose. Quote, there is an increasing tendency to concentrate the functions of propaganda in the hands of the propaganda specialist. This specialist is more and more assuming a distinct place and function in our natural life. New activities call for new nomenclature. The propagandist who specializes in interpreting enterprises and ideas to the public and in interpreting the public to the promulgators of new enterprises and ideas has come to be known by the name of Public Relations Council. Really interesting book, if you haven't read it. Uh, maybe I will try. I will add this to the list of books that I want to try and do little lectures on at some point. 
but really interesting book. I would highly encourage you pick it up. Um, I'll put a link on the Subversive Liberty article for this, and if you get it, I'll get like a, I don't know, 10 cent kickback from it. But the point being, really interesting book, really, um, really, uh, I don't know, it kind of opens up your eyes. And if I had the book next to me, I would I would read another part from it right now. But I'm going to move on. I am neither trying, this is me obviously, I am neither trying to credit nor discredit the field of public relations by likening them correctly to propagandists. The point is to show that words often used in the pejorative can have descriptive meanings. And if we allow pejorative connotations to overtake our reason, we might miss the point another is trying to make. This inhibits understanding and is precisely what the political class, especially in a polarized society, thrives on. So, this is where, this is where like the idea of dog whistles really come into play. But I'm just going to keep reading from my from my piece. So, Trump's, deta- Trump's detractors denounce his policy of separating minors from their parents. Supporters of Trump retort the same policy was enacted under the Obama administration, or they might show a video of Obama slash Clinton slash Clinton slash other Democrat speaking about using a similar process as a deterrent or the need to secure our borders, etc. The detractors cry, what about ism? And move forward in the condemnation of their friend, family member, or total stranger for supporting such a horrendous policy, secure in the knowledge they have vindicated themselves by pointing out a logical fallacy. The supporter might then turn to a need for law and order and place the blame on the parents for breaking said law. The detractor might respond with a call to the Christian message, thereby engaging in whataboutism themselves. The cycle continues with pointing out incarcerated parents are separated from their children, that individuals who cross the border are knowingly putting their children in danger, and that these are analogous to con- and that and in turn that these are analogous to concentration camps, proving once again that Godwin's law is, irref- is as irrefutable as the rising sun. Throughout this entire exchange, no information is being received, and no understanding can occur. This is because both parties unconsciously know what their role is, to discredit and delegitimize their opponent for the sake of rhetorical, but more importantly, political victory. The political superstructure goes something like this. Political thinking superstructure goes something like this. If my views are right, and I know they are, then they must be wrong. To be right is to be good, and to be wrong is to be evil. If I am right, therefore good, my opponents must be wrong, and therefore evil. Because of course, don't you see, Democrats hate the rule of law. Because of course, don't you see, Republicans hate immigrants. And aren't they horrible for thinking that? The script is written beforehand, and followed by the adherence of this sacred American pastime. The politicians throw political footballs back and forth, never bothering to score, see, fix the problem, because it benefits them to keep the population divided and entertained in their moral posturing to ensure their re-election and continued power. Some of this is due to corruption. Some of this is due to the incentive structure of government. And as I alluded to before, some of this, very, very, some of this may very well be due to differences in temperaments, cultural norms, etc., that exist before the political mindset is adopted and acted out. One thing, however, is clear to me. Solutions won't be found by continuing the zero-sum game of government mandate, 
and instead we should try to move the conversation beyond political thinking. I, this political thinking that I've elucidated. To be honest with you, I don't know what this looks like or if it's 100% possible, but it starts with injecting nuance and wallowing the, in the complexity of a situation, increasing our understanding of others and being unafraid to challenge our own preconceptions. To do so is to take the first steps of breaking the cycle of political outrage, political retort, political rejoinder, and political posturing we're all guilty of in the heat of the moment. And I absolutely include myself in that. So I want to go back up and reread. Uh, I kind of, I kind of kept blowing. I kind of kept going through the piece. I didn't take a stop. I want to go back up to the part of whataboutism, and more importantly, like the argument that I've kind of created within here. So you start with. Um, you start with people who dislike Trump, which is most people. They denounce his policy of separating minors from their parents. And then the Trump supporters will say the same policy was enacted under Obama. Really, it's a similar policy, right? And then so then they'll trace it back to like the 1997 law. And then they'll show a video of like Obama or some other Democrat saying the same thing or, the, you know, basically saying the same thing as, as most Republicans do. And then, and then the Democrat can show a... The Democrat can show a video of Republicans saying nice things about immigrants, and then it just goes back and forth, and they both cry whataboutism, to quoque. It's an appeal to hypocrisy, and it's a logical fallacy, so let's explain that out a little bit more. The specific logical fallacy is that you're trying to point out somebody's hypocrisy without attack attacking the basis of their argument to begin with. It's an ad hominem. They're saying, I'm saying you are a hypocrite, and therefore you are wrong. Now this is this is a very powerful tool, and you know I, I use I included whataboutism because it's a very popular thing right now to say whataboutism, but I, and it's a lot easier and better to understand this is you know calling out someone for propaganda without addressing the terms of their arguments. And by the way, I firm I am a firm believer in addressing people at their own terms. I am a firm believer in responding in kind. I think it is entirely correct when you when somebody's presenting an argument to well first you can you know if you don't know the person well and even if you do know the person well and you don't know um you don't know exactly where they stand on things it's it's okay if you want to make sure that they're being serious that they're not using thing they're not being um overly grandiose or thick-headed or just trying to make a joke and trying to make you look like a fool so it, it, it's okay to say like, you know, are you serious? Do you really, do you want a serious answer? And if they say yes, then okay, give a serious answer. I'm a firm believer in this. In fact, it is, it is one of the worst things. And this is, this is tertiarily connected to this, but it's another kind of logical fallacy. There's, there's, so this is, this is one calling you a hypocrite. And then that's, you know, that's why you're wrong is because you're a hypocrite. Because of course, don't you know that Obama did this too? Don't you know that Clinton did this too? Don't you know that they were saying the same things as Republicans back, back, back just a little bit ago? And then, of course, you know, don't you know, I mean, don't you know that you're, aren't you a Christian? Don't you want, don't, don't, doesn't the message of Christ say to take in the stranger, to give him the cloak off your back, to turn the other cheek, to accept the unknown, or not accept the unknown, to, to, to care for the poor and the needy and what you do to the least of my people, that you do unto me? Of course, sometimes when somebody's making that claim, they're not even a Christian to begin with, and they're really, again, they're using it as a bludgeon, as a political bludgeon, to serve their rhetorical point. 
It has nothing to do with making none of none of anything I just said there. And by the way, unless you've been off social media completely or unless you have no variation within within your within your friend group and the people that you speak, work and interact with on a daily basis, you've heard exactly this argument because it's the same one that circles around and around and is still to some extent happening on Facebook and other forms of social media. It's the same back and forth that I had, in fact, trying to work through this issue, which is kind of why I decided to do this podcast. This is part of the, this is the problem. This is the problem in and of itself is this back and forth is the political thinking superstructure that I laid out. That is exactly what exists when you are having that type of conversation. The script is written. You know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to win. Because without winning, there is no control and power. And yeah, that works for a political race. But that doesn't work if we want to try and understand these things fully. That does not work if we want to try and, I don't know, make things better. Right? Like, there's a reason why people are coming across the border. There's a reason why there's a there's a reason why there's such a backlash to immigration at the moment too. And instead, most people are completely comfortable with sitting back on their haunches, or not even sitting back on haunches. They're digging you're digging your feet into the sand. You know, if you're ever at the beach and you kind of like shake or if you're under the water and you shake your feet back and forth and you kind of like get deep into the sand so you're kind of stuck there. And then it makes it pretty difficult for you to get pushed over, right? That's what you're doing when you're allowing yourself to have these political arguments over and over and over and over and over again. And what I would like to try and do now, well, tell you what, it's going to be in the next episode. What I would like to, so it'll be in the next episode. So without, if we fear, so remember everybody, so this is, Sorry, I usually just keep going, but I'm actually going to pretend like I'm doing this in two episodes. So don't forget to follow me on all forms of social media at Brian Thornton Jr. That's T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N, like a Thornton, like a thorn in your side. Check me out at subversiveliberty.org. Add me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Send me uh, send me ideas for topics. I'd really appreciate it for the people who are listening now. Um, you guys are the reason why I still like doing this. The fact that there are there is anybody out there, the fact that there is anybody out there who even bothers to at least download the episode and subscribe, even if you don't listen to everything, really means the world to me. Um, so I really hope you guys are enjoying this talk, and it's going to continue in the next episode. Really, it's just what I'm recording right now. But um, yeah, remember, if we fear what we do not understand, the answer must be to try to understand everything. So I hope you have a good morning, a good evening, and good night.